0: Around 2003, cloud computing changed. The data center changed and cloud computing changed. And that's when we got automation, software control, virtualization, maturing, and and then a few years later we got software-defined networking. The convergence of all those technologies changed the data center, the cloud, and the internet. Changed the way we experience the internet.
1: This is episode 338 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, we bring you a conversation with Jeff Christensen from Entry Point Networks. Entry Point develops software defined networks, also known as dynamic open access networks, an approach with the potential to redefine the municipal open access model. Regular listeners will recognize Ammon Idaho as a software-defined network, and Christopher and Jeff discuss Ammon during the interview. Jeff describes a model where municipalities fill the role of infrastructure provider while services are handled by the marketplace. Innovation, security, speed, and individual choice, not only of provider but also of how a subscriber uses the infrastructure, can reverse the negative impacts of a model that we've all grown accustomed to. This focus on control for users, rather than technology from ISPs, allows innovation without constraint, which ultimately benefits everyone. Christopher and Jeff also discuss how cloud computing has affected software-defined networks and reimagine the way we use the Internet. They get into cloud edge computing and discuss how future trends show users-defining technology needs. Be sure to watch Jeff's TED Talks and check out more about how EntryPoint is helping to redefine open access at entpnt.com. We have links and embedded videos on the podcast page. Now here's Christopher and Jeff Christensen from EntryPoint Networks.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. It's 2019, and we're starting off pretty strong. I'm Chris Mitchell up here in Minneapolis and with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, in case you didn't pick up on that in the last 340 or so episodes. Um, talking today with Jeff Christensen, the president of Entry Point Networks, who I'm, I'm going to guess you're coming to me from Utah today.
0: That's right. Salt Lake City.
2: Great. I'm, I was hoping that you'd be home. I know you spend a lot of time on the road. Actually, several of my listeners may be familiar with your TED Talk videos that we've tried to promote over the years. Before we talk about entry point, I, I'm just be curious if you give us a a little sense of your background. It's
0: uh, it's sort of an unintentional history of startups. I did my schooling, I did my undergraduate here at the University of Utah, and then I did a master's degree uh, back at Purdue in Indiana.
2: Big Ten, <laughs> sorry. Big Ten, yes. yeah, that's right.
0: Big. <laughs> After graduate school, I went to work for a boutique consulting firm. Through that, met Brad Banyai, who became now a 30-year business partner. Uh, Together, we started three companies. After the consulting firm, we purchased a software company that converted paper data to digital data, primarily for the healthcare industry. And We grew that company from four employees to 500 employees and then sold it to a company in Nashville in 2010. And as we uh, got to the point where we, we thought we would sell that company, we, we invested in EntryPoint. That was in 2008. We knew about software. We knew about managing development teams, but we didn't know anything about networking. And really, we we invested because we believed in Robert Peterson, uh, who we had met sort of on a chance meeting Robert. So Robert really is the founder of Entry Point, and he's our technology strategist.
2: And Robert is someone who, anyone who's watched the video, we did the 20-minute-ish video on Ammon, Idaho's uh, approach with software-defined networking and their whole financial model. And we're going to talk about how Entry Point is very involved in that, but people may have seen Robert Peterson in uh, that video.
0: Met Robert, invested not from a position of understanding, but from a really a position of faith in his intelligence and grasp of the issues and Once we sold the other company that we had built, uh, we turned our full attention to entry point and it's been a It's been a long research and development cycle, really since uh full time effort since two thousand and twelve but I think the platform that we've built is uh, right for the times. I think there's a lot of convergence going on that uh, gives us some real competitive advantages and opportunity to to make a difference.
2: Jeff, you you've done like I said several TED talks, and and I'm curious if you can just tell us a little bit about what's broken in t- in terms of the telecommunications networks that we all depend on.
0: Yeah, the first TED talk I gave really was focused on what's broken. I think most people think about what's broken in terms of paying too much and getting too little back. And that's certainly part of the issue, but we fundamentally what we think is broken is the way the whole system is structured and the way we say it. And I've got to credit Seth Godin because we kind of took something Seth Godin had written and, and modified it for our own benefit, but We say that incumbent network operators want to serve just enough to make the maximum profit and cities are incentivized to build networks, which profit just enough to provide the maximum service. So it's, it's flipping really the whole model upside down right now. The incumbents have total control because they control the infrastructure and the services. And by breaking that up, we can, build networks that are really designed to serve subscribers. And so that's fundamental for us is breaking up that control and organizing systems in favor of consumers.
2: What I really like about that, you know, what really appeals to me is that that problem statement makes it clear that our problem is not going to be solved just with better technology And this is one of those things I think sometimes people get hung up on when they're trying to improve Internet access or or network access more broadly in their community um, is they start thinking fiber, fiber, fiber. And your focus is on who controls it as opposed to what the technology is. I think, you know, we all agree that we're looking at, at a fiber optic technology ideally, but um, who knows where that'll go over the next several decades. And you're focused on kind of who controls the technologies and what incentives they, they, uh, they have.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're, we're very much focused on the control issues and the incentive issues. And ultimately, we think this area is open to disruption because the systems aren't set up to serve customers they're they're set up to serve the profit interests of the large incumbents and that's not immoral it's not unethical it just doesn't work for consumers and it it will it will continue not to work until we fix that problem.
2: Right. It's it's kind of like saying, you know, on the savanna, the um, the lion eating its prey is not immoral, but it is inconvenient for the antelope and, and those kinds of animals. Yeah right. <laughs> um, so what are we doing about it? And, and let's, let's get into this. I mean, I think we can't assume that everyone who's listening is familiar with Ammon, no matter how many times I talk about it. So how do you want to explain what Ammon's doing and how Entry Point figures into that?
0: To keep it simple, Ammon is really two things, the way we look at it. Ammon is a financing mechanism and it's a technology platform. And I think both of them are innovative, although we've seen hints of both in different places. But what's core to the financing mechanism is that risk is distributed to the subscribers. So rather than the city itself taking on the risk, Ammon has distributed that risk to the, the people who voluntarily participate in the network. There are quite a few moving parts on the technology, but fundamentally, the technology separates the infrastructure and the services, and that separation allows us to solve what we think is broken with the current model. So we talk about it as open access, as cloud. In our world, we're moving all the service providers, including the ISP, to the cloud, and we're leveraging advanced networking tools to make access Look like the internet. So, what's really broken technologically is access because access is a siloed system. It's a closed system controlled by the incumbents. And so, we're opening that up, moving services to the cloud, moving control of the infrastructure to the city or could be a utility, could be a cooperative. Um, But we're moving control. So the control can be shifted to the consumer and the subscriber.
2: So before we lose um, people who, who might start to be intimidated, let's unpack what it means to separate the infrastructure from the services. Um, you know, I, I think maybe it just is useful to think about this um, in, in terms of our own homes. You know, I have Ethernet cords running uh, throughout my home. Um, how How do I separate the services from the infrastructure conceptually in that environment?
0: So if we think about infrastructure, let's stay with fiber optics, since that's our most robust media. To keep it simple, let's ask who controls the fiber optics. And right now, that's the large incumbents in 99.x percent of the country. And then let's say who controls the services. And again, it's the same answer for 99 plus percent of the country. It's the large incumbents. So if we just think about, rather than explaining it technologically, just think about the group that owns the infrastructure is different than the group that controls the services. And technologically, we've uh, created a system that allows those to be independent of each other, to to leverage each other, but to interact independently of each other. And the services all get pushed to the cloud, which means all service providers, including ISPs, are software companies. And once we get to software, we know that we've got a lot more flexibility. It's a lot more dynamic. And the magic is that real competition can happen and a bunch of other things can happen. Innovation can happen, Um, whereas we're in the siloed system we live in today. Innovation really cannot happen in the access space because it's under, it only happens at the speed of the incumbent. So the incumbent has full control over
2: all of that. Right. So let's let's think about this back. And I was just as you were describing it, I was thinking back to when dial up was exciting, not to when it was depressing. (laughs) Um, But back, you know, in the in the early and mid 90s, when many of us were just thrilled to be using dial up to get on the Internet, um, at that point, uh, almost anybody could create an ISP because right. the, the phone service allowed you to use their lines. And so an ISP didn't know how to connect people to homes. They didn't have to worry about dialing, um, you know, how the, how the phone system really worked. They just answered phone calls with a modem bank, and then they put people on the Internet. And so all of the, the physical stuff was just abstracted away in the sense that if you wanted to be an ISP, you didn't have to know how to construct a physical network. And so in some ways, that's what you're replicating now. And, and, and in doing that, you're removing barriers to entry for all kinds of companies that then can specialize in software, in, in working with users and providing them services without worrying about how to build a physical network.
0: Exactly. Yep. It's, and that's a critical piece. So on the entry point side of it, we see our job to be to make it easy for the stakeholders of the network to do their thing and then to interact with each other. So our job is to make it easy for a new ISP to come onto the network. Our job is to provide an interface that's intuitive, that makes it easy for the subscriber to switch ISPs. So in Amos, we've sort of built a lot of stock around the idea that they can switch their ISP in 30 seconds. Um, But we also, our job is to make it easy for the network operator to see what's going on in the network, in the next month, we will roll out in Ammon some tools that allow all three stakeholders to real-time identify where an issue is. So if there's if there's an outage, all three stakeholders, the subscriber, the service provider, and the network operator, simultaneously will be able to to get an alarm and say, this is where the problem is.
2: And that's different from the majority of open access networks today, where I think if there's an outage uh, of the three stakeholders, the ISP, the network operator, which we'll assume is the city for this purpose, and the subscriber, in, in most of those open access networks today, if there's an outage, only the operator, the city, could really know where that is most likely today, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's true, and not only in open access, but I think it's true. Everywhere. I mean, we just had that big CenturyLink outage, and it was a couple of days before we got an explanation on what happened. Our goal is to make that obvious real time, and, and to tell. We're actually going to prompt consumers. We're gonna we're gonna send out text messages before they know it that there's an outage, and then if they should call someone, we're gonna tell them who to call by identifying where
2: the problem is. So one of the things that that I think is interesting is that both with your problem statement and with the tools that you're building, um, I think... You will not be successful if the only thing that results in Amman or in other cities that you're working with is lower prices for internet access. (laughs) And I want to get into that in in a second. I just wanted to first note that um, I am just going to skip all the ways in which Amman's financing model is brilliant and really avoids a lot of the challenges focused with building these networks um, because we've done several shows on it. We have a video about it. So I'll encourage people if they want to learn more about that particular angle, which would be a natural thing to talk about, um, to check out some of those past shows. I mean, we'll have them, links to that stuff in the, in the podcast page that is associated with this. But, but tell me, you know, would you regard it as a failure if the only result in Ammon that sets it apart from other places is a lower price for the same kind of services?
0: It's a great question and something we struggle with because we sometimes are too focused on the future um, where what consumers understand today is lower costs
1: <laughs> right.
0: or or bandwidth. We're actually working with a city, um, going to a city council meeting tonight here in Utah, where a good percentage of the residents don't. They have less than one meg. I mean, they just, and and many of them are on a point-to-point wireless network because there is no alternative. So, you know, there is a segment of the country that still is, either not served or vastly underserved. And the problem they see in front of them is clearly an access at all, just a zero access problem.
2: Right. That's a it's a good reminder and a, and a note that you're not just sort of focused on the areas that, that already have Good service and figuring out how to make it better you your solution certainly will apply to areas that have nothing as well as those that are more advanced, but I think it's worth noting that Ammon has by FCC standards pretty modern connectivity in the absence of this network that your technology is enabling um, so I just want to get back to to poking you on this issue of um, of um, of exactly you know what what is success for entry point.
0: So given that what consumers understand today is faster speed and lower cost, and that's, that's certainly part of the equation. But, we, you know, the question we ask ourselves is how can municipal broadband move from being somewhat marginal in terms of just sheer numbers, um, although it's growing, but how, do we, how does it move from being somewhat marginal to being real disruption, to being uh, something that every city is thinking about and eventually every city is doing something about, and so I think that's that's the way we frame it is what what do we need? what problems do we need to solve so that every city is focused on this and doing something about it? and and I, I think there are real reasons to be optimistic on say a 10 to 15 year view. And and, and that's because cities can solve the, the fundamental problem, which is paying attention to what the subscribers want. But there is really tight alignment between the interests of the city and the interests of the consumer. I mean they both want the same thing from the network. And many of those things are things that the cities aren't paying attention to today. And subscribers aren't thinking about today. And and so that has to do with what does the future look like and what will the network have to be capable of doing in order to check those boxes. And, you know, there's a lot of hype around 5G right now, and 5G is being presented as sort of the this knight riding in on a horse that's going to solve all the problems. But it's not going to solve the fundamental problem, which is 5G is still going to be designed for the benefit of the network operator and the service providers, the incumbents. And so it's still not going to solve the
2: fundamental issue. Which is uh, one of control, which is, I think, one of the things that we're excited about in Ammon is this idea of what if somebody has a really good idea? Um, Does the network allow them to do that? And that's where I, I think to some extent we're, we're putting our hopes is that the future is not just um, one of streaming video over the Internet from centralized sources that are kind of distributed but centralized, um, you know, in terms of who owns them, um, but as much more of, um, of local companies doing interesting things with local clouds, right?
0: Yep, yep, that's right. And so one way to think about it technologically is that around 2003, cloud computing changed. The data center changed and cloud computing changed. And that's when we got automation, software control, virtualization, maturing. And and then a few years later, we got software-defined networking. All of the, the convergence of all those technologies changed the data center, changed the cloud and changed, uh, the, the internet changed the way we experience the internet. And we see those same things now pushing out into, you know, let's call them wide area networks, those same technologies. And that's really technologically what we're doing is applying all of those technologies that changed the data center. We're now applying them to a wide area network and, Making the networks more flexible, more responsive, um, really making access the access space look like the internet itself, um, because we're applying all these technologies to access.
2: Right, I like to be specific wherever possible, and so. You know, what I'm imagining as you're talking about that switch over in 2003 is, you know, prior to 2003, if you had a, a company that suddenly had uh, thousands of new uh, potential customers that wanted to use its online service, uh, they'd probably have to put a whole bunch of new physical machines together. They'd have to put software um, that would uh, that would be an operating system on those machines. They'd have to do all this work, um, you know, physical cards. And and, and and now they've virtualized all of that. And so it's just kind of like you know, a computer basically makes decisions as to how to allocate space on a vast server farm, and, and there's a lot less human intervention um, involved. That's, that's more or less the story, right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly the story. And so I think what the industry – and I would say it's more the data center industry that's, that's focusing on this, but more and more telecommunications – is calling it as cloud edge computing – uh, one of the founders of software-defined networking is Scott Shanker out of Berkeley. And one of the things he said that we've paid a lot of attention to is that everything interesting will happen in software at the edge. And by the edge, we mean the consumer edge.
2: Right. And in some ways, it means I decide, not AT&T decides, right? That's what the edge means.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's what do we need to have happen out there on a light pole, by a security camera, in a school that's intelligent, that's automated, that's software mediated? Um, What has to happen there and, and what does the network have to look like to make that possible? And so technologically, that's what we're focused on.
2: And this this all gets back to and I want to I don't I don't think we've done a good enough job of hammering at home something that's often called permissionless innovation. Um, and, And I think one of the things that I just love about your view of how we should build networks is that, you know, if a school has an interesting I.T. idea, they should be able to implement that, and, and maybe they want to coordinate with the city who owns the network if that's the case, but maybe they don't have to. Um, but if they're in a situation in which, for instance, CenturyLink owns the pipes, um, they would have to probably go to CenturyLink and ask them because it's a, it's a different paradigm of how the network is operated, and we want to avoid that situation because the school's not going to be able to get CenturyLink's permission to do something innovative and different.
0: The permissionless part of it is very important, and it's it's subtle. The structure of the incumbent model prevents a whole bunch of things from happening because, um, you know, the example you gave, because the incumbents want to monetize everything that happens, and because they want to treat bandwidth as a scarce resource for monetization reasons, there is a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't happen. And so, You know, go back to the Ammon model. One of the part of the genius of Bruce Patterson was once you pay for your infrastructure, you're really liberated to do what you want to do with the network. As long as you behave uh, inside the rules of engagement, you do have a lot of freedom to use that infrastructure in really open ways. And then technologically, our job is to make it easy, to give interfaces and automation that makes it easy for interesting things to happen at the edge.
2: So what does a city think about today as they are um, sort of unaware of where the network's going to go, but they want to be enabling as many opportunities as possible for the next 10, 20 years?
0: The cities that are working with Entry Point today are cities that have somebody like Bruce Patterson. Uh, they have somebody who's actually, they're thinking about, not just the fast internet, low cost problem, which is a problem in every city, but they're actually thinking about, they're creating a strategy for 10 years, 20 years from now and thinking about as technology impinges more and more on the operations of the city, they're actually thinking about it. And and, and we we understand that. We understand that not every city is is going to have a Bruce Patterson.
2: This is one of those inconveniences of history, but um so Bruce Patterson um is the i t person the i t director for the city of ammon and um in a close partner effectively and, and at least um ideologically and spiritually with Robert Peterson <laughs> for people who are from, unfamiliar with both of these names we're we're kind of going. Back and forth, but the two of them I hope will end up in, in some history books as this model changes the world in, in the best of all possible universes um, but But for people who aren't familiar, go back and check out the videos we've done of the, um, the podcast interviews we've done with these folks
0: in terms of the cities and how they're framing the problems, you know part of the work we do we've we found that the municipal broadband as a whole hasn't been focused enough on strategy and and strategy by definition means that we are, we're thinking about why we're solving the problem. We're thinking long-term and short-term. And so part of the work we're doing is, is really trying to get the cities to invest in strategy and think through, you know, there are places we can go to look and find out where, you know, where are the trend lines for technology and, and what do those trend lines mean for cities what are the implications and really are you as a city are you comfortable outsourcing your digital future to a large incumbent and letting them set your strategy letting them set what's possible for you or do you have to get serious about thinking about the future and thinking about what the network that is so fundamental to life now uh, thinking about what that network has to do,
2: I think one of the challenges that that you pose is that uh, cities getting into this space it 's always going to be a challenge um, if you 're going to get into it with a the mindset of uh, Wilson a Chattanooga, a Lafayette, and many others who have built very successful triple play networks in which they are the only operator and they are hitting you know their metrics of success um you know that's challenging on, on one axis. Um, on a different axis is saying um, we're going to try to to move ahead and not just be successful within the framework of of kind of historic incumbent cable and telephone models, but but in a new way of enabling all kinds of innovation and, and thinking outside the box in in ways that could have you know repercussions that are unpredictable today. And, and that, I think, you know, it's is less challenging from a sense of how do we compete with the cable company, and it's more challenging in a sense of what technological decisions are we making, you know, who are we hiring with what job description. Um, those are the sorts of harder problems you have in that scenario.
0: Yep, that's that's right. And it, you know, as we think about the potential disruptive capability not just of entry point, but of the convergence of technologies um, combined with cities taking these issues seriously. So I think the convergence, and I'm going to add in the Ammon model, the Ammon model is the financial model that Bruce Patterson developed, because really what he's saying is that a city can build this network for zero municipal debt. In Ammon's case, the city did contribute. But they they could have still been successful if they had shifted, distributed all of the debt to the people that opt in. And so the message of the Ammon financial model is every city can do this without any municipal debt, and you can still lower the cost for consumers. You can still increase the speeds, and in addition, you can build a network that's Future-proof, meaning the network is evolvable and it's flexible and it's um, resilient and it's scalable and it's repeatable city after city. So, you know, the, the financial model is critical because it's such a, a big boulder for cities to crawl over. But we can we can achieve everything that's been achieved in Lafayette and Chattanooga, meaning lower cost, more value a successful network. And by adding in these technological attributes, we can also give cities something that really has an economic development impact and really enables the future because they control this essential infrastructure.
2: The financial model from Ammon frees you from the debt. And, And it frees you in the sense that You're not making decisions as to, oh, how do we make sure we make our next month's debt payment? Um, You know, can we really enable this or do we need to figure out a price to put on it? Um, You're free from that because the the debt has been taken care of by the subscribers and, um, you know, the enthusiastic supporters um, to the system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's in your other podcast, but fundamentally, we're going to the homeowner and we're saying, look, we want to cut kind a of deal with you. We want you to treat your broadband connection like your sewer and water connection as an improvement to the property. Because of that, you can either pay for that connection up front or we'll give you a financing mechanism. In, in return, you're going to be an owner of that infrastructure, which means you can pay it off. You know, We believe that we can go into any city and drop the average price 20 to 30 percent. And then once they pay off the infrastructure, we can drop it another twenty to thirty percent. And so the deal is you take ownership of the infrastructure, Mr. Subscriber, Mrs. Subscriber. In return, we're gonna give you a whole bunch of value. We're gonna give you lower costs, we're gonna give you faster speeds, we're gonna give you new technological capabilities. And so it's a deal between the city and the, the subscriber, and the city really becomes an enabler of this. And by becoming an enabler, the city gets all this value back because they really become a connected city and they've got this robust network that they can now do a lot of interesting things with in public safety, telemedicine, emergency communications, you know, everything that cities care about.
2: And so as we wrap up here, I feel like. People listening to this might be thinking, "Well, okay, entry point provides you know um, sort of both some leadership on this and so, the software that enables the network to operate." Um, but you're actually helping cities at a very early stage to understand this and to move in this direction. And, you know, in some ways, you're you're consulting as well um, with cities that are that are interested in this approach.
0: We are. We don't intend to become a consulting firm and we don't describe ourselves. We describe ourselves as a software platform, as a service, but to shift from what we know today to what we have to be in the future, it does require consulting. And so that is the first phase, the cities that are, that we're working with that are actively implementing networks. The first part of that is creating a broadband plan, which includes a strategy and then an execution plan And then a project plan. And so that's all sort of a consulting role, even though we don't see ourselves as a consulting company.
2: Right. But we'll be seeing some more announcements over 2019 of more cities that are moving forward. I guess the last question is just how many cities are already adopting the Ammon model that you can speak publicly about?
0: We've learned that it's not necessarily – while it would be good from a PR point of view to fuel the momentum – We've learned that as soon as we, as word gets out that cities are moving this direction, that the floodgates open up on opposition. And, you know, we had a city just recently that was a done deal, got strong incumbent pressure and strong legislative pressure, and they backed off their plan because of that. And so we probably will be slow to announce. Um, I think I'm comfortable saying that we're going to have. Fifteen cities in 2019. Moving forward with this model, we'll be slow to announce those cities, just because we don't think we do them a favor. We, we create more burden and hurdle for them by putting it out there. So we'll we'll let them announce their news, and once they announce their news, then we'll we'll publicize it as well. And I know you will, but we'll Absolutely. probably be slow to to release that information.
2: Okay, well, thank you, Jeff, um, for for coming on the show. Um, you've been um, <laughs> you've been a friend ever since we met on a flight on the way to Ammon. Um, um, Delta sat us next to each other, and I was at first a little skeptical. This person who just sort of knew knew a lot about me and where I was going. But um, yeah. it's been a pleasure getting to know you and seeing what Entry Point's doing.
0: Likewise, and and Entry Point certainly appreciates everything you're doing, Chris, and, and your organization
1: does. That was Jeff Christensen, president of Entry Point Networks. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research from all our initiatives. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org, and while you're there, please take a moment to donate. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed to Creative Commons, and thank you for listening to Episode 338, the 1st of 2019, of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast.